Hi, my name is Dr. Jim Bell, and I'm here to talk today with you about the family meeting. I'm a family physician by training. I graduated from the University of Iowa College of Medicine in 1983, and I've been in family practice for many years in Marion, Iowa. And as uh, part of that time, I was part-time medical director for St. Luke's Hospice until we started our palliative care program in 2005. I've been the medical director of both hospice and palliative care since then and full-time since 2008. I'm very happy to be with you today uh, to share some of the important aspects of the family meeting. I do not have any financial interests or relationships uh, relating to the presentation uh, uh, or any other aspects of uh, the presentation that are uh, financially tied. So patients who are in potentially life-limiting situations are scared, and the family meeting is really the centerpiece of having a conversation about setting goals and understanding the right way to take care of people. The procedure in palliative medicine really is the family meeting, just like a cardiologist has a catheterization procedure or a surgeon has a scalpel. So we consider the family meeting to be the most important thing that we do. Many of the things that I do, I've learned the hard way and some of the hopefully detours around some of the difficulties I can provide you today uh, are simply by virtue of uh, saying the wrong thing enough that uh, I realize when it doesn't work. Uh, I know that the focus of the geriatric lecture series this year is on palliative care and certainly doing a family meeting uh, outside of a palliative care situation uh, would be very appropriate and some of the things that we talk about today will translate into other situations but my primary emphasis is going to be on speaking with patients and families in a family meeting situation with the idea that they are facing a potentially life-limiting illness and uh, by that it would be defining sort of the palliative care uh, idea. So oftentimes uh, you'll find that a family meeting is emotionally charged and uh, extremely volatile and sometimes uh, it's about acknowledging the elephant in the living room. It's really just saying yeah this is a big problem and uh, it's time to sit down and talk about it. People want to sit down and talk because as again, I said earlier, they're scared. Uh, they, they're in the middle of a crazy environment where we sometimes do crazy things to people and we don't talk very much about it. So if everything was left to kind of the default setting, oftentimes uh, what happens is that we just keep doing things to people because we can. The family meeting is really meant to take a bird's eye view of the medical picture and insert the patient and the family into the middle of the conversation of decision-making so that we can take the right kind of care of them. So we'll talk about some of the pertinent aspects of uh, the family meeting uh, and some of the process and some of the outcomes. So the first thing to do when thinking about getting together uh, with the family uh, over a patient with a clinical situation is to understand that situation the best that we can. So when I am identifying the 
primary issues that we're going to talk about, the first thing for me to do is to go to the chart record and to understand the basic information about the patient the best that I can. What is the truth of the illness or set of illnesses that a patient uh, is facing? And sometimes uh, the truth of, of a situation uh, is difficult to discern. Sometimes the truth of a situation is very intuitive and we sort of choose to set that aside and not talk about it because it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or because it's uh, easier to continue to do things the same way that we've been doing them than it is to kind of talk about plan B. So it's uh, critical to understand as much as we possibly can about the facts of the situation. And again, we, we would be dealing with diseases like cancer, uh, heart disease, lung disease, neurologic diseases uh, like progressive uh, debilitating diseases such as ALS or multiple sclerosis, strokes. Uh, we might be dealing with kidney disease or uh, liver disease uh, that is progressive or some combination of all of those types of diseases, uh, which when you put them together, become potentially life-limiting or life-threatening situations. In order to help families to kind of walk through the difficult and extremely technical choices that they face, we want to ascertain and as best as we possibly can discern the, the truth of the situation, what the possible interventions are, and what the outcomes of those uh, interventions might be. And so before I ever go in and sit down with a family, I have to have some kind of an idea uh, as the keeper of the process to understand um, what um, the reality of the situation is. It's also very important to get an idea of who should be at the meeting. And so from the medical team side or the palliative uh, care team side uh, or whatever the provider group is, uh, it's important probably to think about a couple of things. First is to not overwhelm the family and the patient with numbers. And so uh, if we outnumber them, then it's a very intimidating and scary kind of a situation. But it's also sometimes important for specific team members to be present. So for example, if one of the things that a family might be struggling with uh, is the possibility that the patient might not be able to leave uh, the hospital and go home, if it might not be safe, uh, or the family is not going to be able to provide adequate care for the patient, then we may need to have a social worker involved in the family meeting to talk about what the other choices are, um, what the financial implications of that uh, would be uh, for them, uh, what the emotional implications of that would be for them, and really to think about what that means to the patient in terms of the quality of life. So I may have a social worker present at a team meeting, or I might have a spiritual care team member present at a meeting. Uh, if the situation were different, let's say the issue was more one of the deep meaning and purpose of life, uh, for a person who's obviously nearing the end of their time. They're maybe struggling with uh, doing some things 
aggressively that could keep them alive longer. But the issue really is that maybe they're afraid uh, of what the alternative would look like if they didn't choose to do those aggressive things. And what that really comes down to is, for example, what they are afraid of about what happens when they die. So in a situation like that, I may send even a spiritual care team member in to do some preliminary work to talk with the patient or their family about where they find their strength, where they find their peace, uh, where they find meaning and purpose in their life, how they connect with the people that they love, so that I can understand better before we even start the team meeting what they believe about those things. Determining at the outset of the family meeting who's going to be in the room from the medical standpoint or the team standpoint can be very, very important. From the family perspective, it's also real important to understand who's going to be at the meeting. So very often we find that patients who are very sick have either a limited capacity to understand what's happening to them and the consequences of their decisions uh, or no capacity uh, at all. They may not even be conscious. They may not be able to speak or communicate. They may have uh, some difficulties with cognition uh, that impairs their ability to work through a decision. Part of our job is to even help to determine how much capacity they do have. But if they lack the capacity or the complete capacity for decision-making, then we need to figure out who the surrogate decision-maker is. And it's best not to guess about that. It's best to have the idea of who that is before the family meeting is started. Now, the surrogate decision-maker legally uh, could be stated on a power of attorney for healthcare uh, form. Uh, and if it's not, there is a legal statute in the state of Iowa that would determine by priority who that surrogate decision maker is. And sometimes, unfortunately, we're left with a legal surrogate decision maker who we may not choose, uh, if it was all up to us, uh, to be that patient's surrogate decision maker, but we have to deal with that. And that person may or may not be central to the care of the patient. So sometimes a primary caregiver is important to be in the conversation and in a family meeting, uh, even if they're not the legal voice for the patient. We need to at least explore who is taking care of the patient, who is the primary sort of social support, and uh, at least involve them in the conversation, whether they're physically present in the meeting or not. Extended family are obviously extremely important. I have learned, again, the hard way um, often that if we exclude uh, extended family, uh, that can often simply breed trouble later on. So when somebody is in California uh, or uh, on the East Coast and may think something differently about the truth of the situation that we've talked about or what the choices are, what the implications of those choices are, we need to involve them as much as anything for potential damage control so that later on it doesn't become, wait a second, you talk behind my back, you made a decision that I disagree with, maybe the discussion that we had is misrepresented or misinterpreted uh, or words that were said are heard differently and become uh, just an obstacle uh, in terms of, again, taking the right kind of care of the patient so in general, I believe in involving extended family as much as possible in a family meeting. Now, that may not be 
physically present, but it could be on a cell phone, it could be Skype, it could be a number of different uh, ways of being present. In palliative care, we certainly consider our consultants uh, to be one of our patients as well. And so I need to think about which doctor actually asked me to become involved in the situation and what the reason for that was and what other consultants may be involved and what other issues they may have with the outcomes or the consequences of the decisions that are made uh, with, for, with and for the patient. And again, the last bullet, it's best to have everyone possible at a family meeting who is a stakeholder in the process, uh, and especially those who may potentially cause some difficulty if they were not there. It seems a little bit ridiculous, maybe, to talk about physical space and seating uh, in a professional situation like this, but it becomes incredibly important. And again, I've learned the hard way over and over again uh, that if there isn't a seat for everybody and I end up standing, um, that that body language says something completely different than if I'm sitting at eye level with everyone. And uh, it can just become extremely damaging and, it, and make it extremely difficult to have the right kind of a conversation. Uh, if we don't pay some attention to that. So uh, what tends to happen if the doctor is standing up and everybody else is sitting is that they feel inferior, they feel like they're getting preached at, they feel the physician is being dominating and domineering. And that's frankly inappropriate and makes the right family meeting uh, consequences much more difficult to get through. So I pay attention to that and we try to have a physical space. We try to make sure that everybody can sit down uh, and be on eye level. It's important to introduce who is in the room. It's important to talk uh, about their relationship uh, to the patient. This seems simple too, but if it's at all possible, we want to do this in the patient's room uh, with them present. And I always tell families that I won't say anything about a patient that I wouldn't say right to them. So if we can't have the patient involved because maybe they're agitated or delirious or maybe unconscious, then I make sure uh, that they are well aware that we're not talking really behind a patient's back, that we're gonna say the same things using the same words, whether the patient was in the room or not in the room. And it's uh, important really to kind of lay that groundwork early to allay fears and allay suspicions that people might have that we're somehow being sly or being tricky um, or that we're um, that we have an agenda uh, a secret sort of uh, pull the plug kind of desire to uh, somehow make things be bad so we pay attention to who's in the room and who they are and who they represent sometimes uh, one of the things that is necessary again is to just identify the pecking order in the room. Everybody gets to talk, but the voice that really counts the most is, in terms of the decision making ultimately is that legal surrogate voice. And sometimes we have to come back to that more than once. More often than not, what I find is that uh, the best mode for decision making. Uh, however, is what we call shared decision-making. And so you really want to reach for a consensus opinion uh, rather than a divisive sort of an opinion. 
sometimes that's not possible, but that's that's really what we uh, what we want if uh, if we can. So once sort of those ground rules are established, I have an idea of the basics of uh, what's happening medically. We have the stakeholders from the medical team and we have the stakeholders from the family. We're all sort of sitting around comfortably. Uh, we've um, introduced each other, probably spent just a little bit of time casually sort of talking about uh, something, something else just to sort of uh, become acquainted a little bit. Uh, then it's time to move into the uh, actual uh, meeting itself. And so we'll discuss uh, kind of a review uh, of the goals. And what I'll tell people, depending on the situation, is that we probably, in many cases, aren't going to leave the meeting with a dramatically different picture. I tell them I'm not going to turn their world upside down. I tell them that if anything, oftentimes I'm giving them sort of food for thought or homework. Uh, things to think about. So sometimes that helps to allay fears that when we come out of this meeting that that again their world is just going to be turned completely inside out. Uh, at the very most we might talk about two or three goals for the day and again that depends on the particular situation. We might go into a meeting thinking that what we um, really need at the end of the day today is to understand the code status for a patient. So I may tell them at the beginning in kind of a warning shot that there might be one or two questions that I'm going to really need to know the answers to today. And all the rest of the stuff that we're going to think about uh, is food for thought. Sometimes also we sense at the very, very beginning of the meeting that there's family disruption or tension that really screams that we're not going to be able to accomplish uh, the kind of things that we hoped to in the first setting and we need to make adjustments in our expectations uh, and in our own timeline about things. So we may need to consider uh, planting some seeds today and coming back tomorrow or the next day and talking about it. Or it might be that it's clinically most appropriate to do that. Uh, for example, in a situation where somebody's maybe had a massive stroke and uh, we don't know what the day after tomorrow is going to look like and there's actually medically a couple of different likely possibilities. So reviewing those goals up front is really important because it gives everybody the confidence that there's not a secret expectation uh, of something else. Again, sort of establishing the rules of conduct in that family meeting is important. The loudest person in the room is many times not the one who is the medical decision maker. Managing that part of the family meeting uh, is important. So uh, the way that I like to think about it again is to be the arbiter of the, or the keeper of the process. And I let everybody know that, not from the standpoint that I'm gonna be a bully um, or that I'm gonna be uh, the boss, but that somebody needs to uh, let the line out and pull the line back in uh, and help everybody uh, to have a voice and to understand. And so, we, we do uh, need a leader uh, to take on that role uh, and to um, identify the uh, pecking order uh, or the power structure for the, the rest of the folks in the room. Sometimes the patient has chosen 
the uh, surrogate decision maker for a very, very specific reason uh, and actually leapfrogged over other people who might think that they would naturally have been that decision maker. Uh, and we have to help people understand why that might be and that as much as they don't like it, uh, that's the way it is. Doing that in an anticipatory way uh, or a proactive way can help us uh, not to have to deal with a lot of damage control later on. Sometimes family members with some medical knowledge uh, can be very, very helpful, and sometimes that they're not so helpful uh, in situations where we're uh, doing some medical decision-making, especially if it's extremely complicated. It's important for us to identify uh, who those people are, if there's a nurse or a physician or uh, somebody in the family uh, that's gonna translate what we talk about uh, and help folks to work through it some more, uh, or if they, uh, again, have strong opinions based on their own experiences or their own professional presence or boundaries. Again, I mentioned identify strong personalities. Being able to discern and to identify and to uh, manage folks who use uh, words or actions or behavior, uh, and that can be for a number of different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's uh, guilt because maybe they haven't been so present uh, for some of the patient's life. Maybe it's because of fear, uh, because they don't really understand uh, exactly what's happening. Uh, and so getting to the root causes of why uh, a, pers a strong personality is strong uh, can be important. But identifying that right up front is, uh, is something that always pays off. And no matter what, what we wanna do is to bring the focus of the discussion back to be about the patient. So uh, oftentimes I talk about the ethical principle of substituted judgment with families and say, you know, we all, uh, myself included, tend to filter uh, this thinking and the decision-making through our own brain. That can be extremely difficult. And one of the hardest things to do, but the right thing to do is to think about what mom or dad would say uh, if he or she was able to be here, sitting here in their best possible mind, telling us uh, about what they think of the decisions that we're making. Obviously, if the patient is of good capacity, then it's uh, much easier to focus on the decision-making process from that perspective. Uh, but uh, it, it, it can be very easy, easy uh, to get lost sort of in the, all the ideas that family members uh, or other interested people have in what we could do uh, if we don't focus on really what is the right way to do it, and that is listen to the voice of the patient. As we start talking about things, it's good to build relationships, and so we uh, wanna know uh, and oftentimes when I'm meeting with uh, families, uh, I haven't met the patient before. Oftentimes, I don't know what life was like for them before uh, the current situation. And so it's important to uh, hear about that. How did they get around? How did they meet their uh, activities of daily living? Were they able to do their own shopping and cleaning and bathing and dressing? and uh, who uh, did that for them if they weren't able to do that? Um, did they require uh, assistive devices? Did they have 
uh, home health care or some other assistance uh, at home uh, or wherever they live. It's also important to know uh, what is important to the patient in their life. Um, what about their family? Uh, sometimes uh, people are anxiously awaiting a significant milestone, uh, maybe the birth of a grandchild or uh, a wedding, uh, or maybe something uh, has happened recently uh, to dramatically change the picture, a death or a loss uh, of some other type. That's very, very important uh, to the patient. And again, those things may affect their medical decision-making uh, to a significant degree. Sometimes it's dysfunctional family relationships where uh, family members have financial interests uh, in the outcomes of a conversation, or they might have some other um, aspect of uh, supporting their own life uh, that is being met by maintaining the status quo, for example, and makes it uh, very challenging to sometimes work through good decision-making for the patient. So we have to try to discern as much as we can about uh, those type of things. And it's not that we necessarily would do something uh, in a decision capacity about that right away, uh, but we wanna know about it for the future. It's real important uh, to know what people know. I have been burned many times by making assumptions uh, about situations. So I really try to start with a blank chalkboard. Don't make any assumptions about what people understand about what's happening to them uh, or what the future possibly could look like. So it's uh, best, if again possible, to first turn to the patient to figure out as much as you can about their capacity for decision making. And you may need to do some orientation questions. More importantly, uh, ask them if they understand what is wrong with them and can articulate that to you. And then try to get the sense for what they can uh, process in terms of a decision that they, that they might make. Let me just take a couple of examples. Uh, somebody who has chronic obstructive lung disease, maybe uh, an emphysema type of problem, and has been in the hospital half a dozen times in the last year for a decompensation of the uh, emphysema. And during those admissions has been in and out of the intensive care unit, um, possibly on a machine like BiPAP, possibly uh, on and off a ventilator. Um, on antibiotics and on IV steroids and all the types of things that happen to people who have uh, emphysema when they have uh, decompensation. Uh, nobody may have ever really sat down and talked with that patient and family about the fact that emphysema is not a curable condition. That the trajectory of illness is one that is going to be, no matter what we do, uh, one of decline, and that it's marked by these um, pits where uh, patients deteriorate and they have to come in the hospital. And we do things to sort of get things back into balance, but we really don't fix what's wrong. So the, the, the very starting point of the conversation is to help people understand the disease and to understand the truth of the trajectory and the inevitable result of what is wrong with them. If they can articulate that to you, it's much, much better than if you have to preach that to them. 
So sometimes we see people who family will meet you outside the room and say, uh, you can't tell grandma that she's dying from emphysema because she'll give up and it will kill her. And we go in and talk to grandma and she says, I'm dying, but you can't tell my family because uh, it'll make them go crazy and, and then they'll give up. Well, in the context of the family meeting, an open-ended question like, what is wrong with you? Or what do you think is gonna happen? Oftentimes allows uh, the patient to really articulate what they do understand or don't understand in a way that can cut through a lot of that uh, difficult conversation. So uh, they, they may not know, um, or they may very, very much know uh, what is happening uh, and what you want to know in the family meeting is, what do they know? So um, starting with that assessment of their capacity for decision-making and what they understand about what's happening to them is critically important. Most of the time in uh, situations where um, we're meeting patients again, it's because there's some tension or there's some discernment that there's a need for decision-making uh, in, a, in a difficult sort of a way. And so what you want to understand is the trajectory of how things have gone. Uh, are things declining? Are things generally stable? Uh, was this a dramatic um, event uh, in somebody who was otherwise uh, healthy? Like, for example, a massive stroke uh, in somebody who didn't have any signs of illness? Um, is this uh, something... Uh, that they've been dealing with for a long, long time, years and years and years, or is it a recurrence of something that uh, was dealt with years ago and now all of a sudden is back? So what we wanna think about is uh, in the middle of all of that, uh, what has happened um, over the last typically three to six months? You might ask some to go, someone to go back in their mind to uh, the last family holiday uh, or uh, a season or two and just say, how were things for you then compared to now? And that gives us an idea, uh, and sometimes uh, people who haven't really thought about it, an idea of how things have changed for them recently. Then we talk about goal setting. And uh, when I talk about goal setting, it's not necessarily about the medical decision-making or the plan. We'll get to that a little bit later, but this is about what is important to you. I mentioned earlier, sometimes there are milestones in people's lives that are important. A baby coming, a wedding coming, something that that is really, really important. We take care of a lot of farmers in Iowa. And so for uh, some of them, um, being outside, being able to feel dirt, uh, being able to see things grow, uh, those are incredibly important sort of life experiences for them. And so uh, when we're thinking about the options of the things that we can do to keep somebody alive longer, those goals and those desires, they're different for everyone and it's important to know what they are. After you've heard from the patient and maybe from their family about what they understand, uh, it's time to reflect a little bit about what um, we know and to help to sort of fill in those gaps. So uh, in order to do that, uh, we need to be able to um, articulate what we've heard and also what we understand that maybe we didn't hear. 
And there's some ways to do that right, and there's some ways not to do that. So even if I'm talking with a, a physician uh, who very obviously understands the lingo and the dialogue, I need to be simple and specific uh, and as thorough as possible. And it's important to just say that um, what I want to do is boil, help them to boil a very complicated situation down to a easily uh, discernible choice as much as we possibly can do that. It's important not to overlook uh, important aspects of, uh, of a person's situation, um, but it's important to, again, to not get down a rabbit trail and to go ahead and incorporate that into a larger picture. So take, for example, someone uh, who, is, um, who has heart disease uh, and has frequent uh, uh, decompensation of their heart failure. Um, and they're developing difficulty with their kidneys and possibly uh, because of the uh, heart um, putting this, a lot of stress on their kidneys, facing the possibility of dialysis. When we talk about uh, the different issues of uh, cardiology and renal medicine, it's important to be able to connect the dots there and to uh, be able to um, clearly identify for patients and their families what having a bad heart and having bad kidneys is going to mean for their existence. And to talk about um, if, for example, they had to go on dialysis, what life would look like for them and what that would do to the likelihood of problems with their heart disease. Being on dialysis three days a week and having to sit up to do it and having to be able to get to a dialysis center uh, and uh, being able to keep the fluids uh, balanced in the body, that's an incredibly complicated situation. And what it means um, very often is that people are not gonna be able to remain independent. They may not be able to live at home even with support. Uh, they're probably gonna be in and out of the hospital more. Uh, life is gonna look different for them. And so sometimes people would say, gosh, if you draw me that picture of how my life is really gonna be, that's not the kind of a life I would wanna live. So being able to simplify it down to that uh, is very important for them. Rather than talking just about the specific issue of what is their creatinine today and what is their potassium level today and um, what can I do today to make that potassium level better tomorrow. So being specific, being simple, and being thorough and putting things in that big picture. Speaking slowly and clearly and deliberately and avoiding medical jargon is very, very important. So um, try to think about talking to your 12-year-old. <laughs> Don't be afraid to review things. So sometimes, uh, especially when delivering bad news, the bad news that you said might be the last thing that they heard. Especially, for example, if you uh, have to tell somebody that they have cancer uh, or have another uh, terminal condition. Uh, very often, uh, it's best to sort of deliver that, step back, maybe even go away for the day, come back another time, uh, and talk some more about the medical decision-making. So again, that, that depends on each individual situation, uh, but don't be afraid to say something, leave it alone, come back to it later. Uh, try not to talk 
too much for too long and allow silence when appropriate. Silence can actually be a great tool to use. Uh, I think in my training, uh, what I heard somewhere was that um, everybody sort of starts to get uncomfortable after about seven seconds of silence. Um, I intentionally let silence go on sometimes much longer than that. And sometimes what that can do is to spawn uh, somebody to say something um, or cry or um, have some type of an emotional reaction uh, or a cognitive reaction that they wouldn't have if you just didn't leave them that time. And when we get done with a family meeting, I consider it to be successful if the patient and their family have talked more than I have. So the best way to sort of conduct this is to try to figure out what information it is that we need to know, ask the questions in a way that gets us that information, but really allows the patient and their family to talk. Try not to um, be overbearing uh, in the conversation and to leave time for silence. Once uh, the family has explained what they know and we've kind of reflected back to them what we know, sometimes again, it's time to pause answer some questions and sort of deal with some of those things that can cause some conflict. Uh, sometimes it's easy when we're doing that to get really down a rabbit trail with details. And sometimes people, again, who have medical knowledge, uh, they wanna know what the percent was on that x-ray and what that blood test showed today compared to yesterday. Uh, and it, it just turns in to um, too much detail and uh, and you can't get anything accomplished. So again, as the keeper of the discussion, it's important to uh, answer questions that people have, but always bring the answer to that question sort of back to the big picture. And again, sometimes uh, it's good to sort of put the pause button on um, and describe the current condition uh, and what we expect uh, to see coming in the very short term ahead. We tend to kind of, in medicine, not really talk very much about what we expect or what we anticipate because sometimes those things aren't pleasant. And sometimes we think, or we wish, that we can uh, alter the course of the future. But many times the things that happen to people are very predictable right up to the issue of dying. So uh, when there is a clear sort of track that things are taking. Um, it's sort of important to say, here's where I th think we are right now. Here's where I see things quite likely being uh, in, the, in the very near future or maybe in the farther future. That uh, again becomes the starting point for having the conversation about how to manage things. I really try hard to make sure that people know that this is a conversation about choices rather than uh, browbeating or making people feel like there's one right answer. Uh, the issue may be whether to go on uh, a ventilator perhaps uh, in a situation where somebody may or may not have been on a ventilator before. It's not that it's a right or wrong thing to go on a ventilator. It is if I choose to allow to be placed on a ventilator for support, what is that gonna mean to the future for me? Does, the, does that make my likelihood of getting home uh, less? Does that uh, 
make uh, a difference to my quality of life? Does it matter um, as far as how long I'm going to live, but more importantly, how I'm going to live? Uh, do you expect if I had to go on the ventilator that that would be for a very short time? Or do you see things that maybe I don't right now that are gonna complicate that and all of a sudden I may find myself uh, still on a ventilator in two or three weeks? Um, and that might make me certainly think different about it. So um, the choices that are in front of us are, are much more important uh, than me uh, implying a right or wrong to the choice. But what we don't do very well sometimes is to talk about what the consequences of a choice might look like. So if I chose to uh, go on the vent today, what do you think Friday is gonna look like? If I chose not to go on the ventilator today, what do you think Friday is gonna look like? Oftentimes patients are scared, uh, and again, especially if they're dealing with symptoms of significant suffering, um, that not doing things the way that we have always done them means that they would suffer more. So sometimes it's a matter of reassuring patients and their families that if we chose to do something differently, uh, here's how we would manage symptoms of distress and suffering and that we can. Sometimes we're in situations where patients very clearly are imminently dying and it's important to simply say that. And especially if there are young children Providers, medical providers, all have sort of their own comfort level with uh, illuminating that truth, but it's important to be able to do it, and especially, again, uh, with young children who may not understand euphemisms such as passing away, it's important not to say your mom may pass away. It's important to say your mom may die. So uh, we have to be not scared uh, to say things like that when uh, it's necessary to do so. And again, it's not to be pejorative or to be judgmental or to say that we know what's gonna happen, but it's not right to not say something like that if it needs to be said. It's important to say it and then deal with it. And again, I've talked some about reviewing the big picture and many times I find that it's necessary and quite helpful to come back to that big picture uh, again and again maybe in more than one sitting. We've sort of discussed and gone through and dug through uh, the whole situation. And then it's time again to kind of sit back uh, and uh, give patients and families time to react. This is about communication and a big part of communication is time. So if the family feels rushed, if the family feels pressured, if the family feels uh, that there's been some uh, inappropriate recommendations or suggestions uh, about what's happening that have been given. Uh, they need time to react to that. Time is important. Uh, many times what we sense is frustration, uh, and sometimes that's because uh, obviously things aren't going the way that we wanted. And it's important to acknowledge and validate those frustrations and to sometimes say reassuring things like, this must be extremely difficult for you. There are some things that I avoid saying in a family meeting, like, I know how you feel. That's an entirely different thing to say. Uh, nobody should ever be told that somebody else knows how they feel because we don't. Um, but saying that this must be extremely hard for you 
or that this must be uh, terribly difficult or emotional is fine and very, very important. Uh, again, clarifying what, what's already been brought out uh, is important. And there are some specific things that sometimes uh, come up as reactions and patterns that patients and families have uh, in the spiritual area too. So sometimes the, the fear um, or the guilt or the anger uh, comes out in a spiritually based kind of a statement like, well, I have faith uh, that God is going to heal me or I expect a miracle to happen. That's a place where, um, again, each clinician or each uh, provider probably needs to have their own comfort level. Uh, it's important for us to examine ourselves as providers, uh, to know what we believe, uh, and to um, not necessarily have to filter decision-making that patients and families have to make through our worldview, um, but to understand our worldview and to respect theirs. And so uh, when I hear things about uh, faith in God or the expectation of a miracle, uh, I many times will reflect back uh, a question and say, uh, uh, depending on the situation, um, that we see miracles happen, and sometimes they don't look exactly like what we expected them to look like. Um, or sometimes a question like, uh, I affirm your belief uh, and your faith uh, in God, but what if um, what you're expecting and believing doesn't happen? Um, and that doesn't negate the presence of God or his work in the situation. Um, it's simply brings it back to the reality of the situation right now. And again, that's a place where I very often may turn to my spiritual care colleagues uh, to come in uh, perhaps later uh, and chat with the patient alone or perhaps with their family uh, about uh, what they believe and why. And I do find that uh, the medical decision-making uh, is profoundly influenced uh, very often by people's worldview. Uh, so I take that uh, part of the questions uh, and reactions of folks very, very seriously and deal with it accordingly. One of the most important things that we do in a family meeting is prognostication. It's, it's difficult not to uh, talk about prognosis uh, if our hope and our desire is to come up with uh, a recommendation or a set of plans for folks. Sometimes people want to know uh, what, what we think in terms of their life expectancy. Sometimes they don't. Uh, I've made it a personal rule uh, to always ask permission, and I think that um, if you don't ask permission uh, to give a prognosis, sometimes you step over a boundary. Um, and I've experienced that where uh, uh, maybe the family wants to know sort of how long we think a person has to live, but the patient really doesn't. And so uh, what, what we then do is reflect the fact that this is not about counting time. Uh, it's about discussing choices. But if they uh, are interested and they give you permission to talk about prognosis, it's important for us to be able to provide honest information uh, using the most appropriate range. Medical studies show us that we're not really very good at prognosis. The closer we get to the end of life, the better we are. It's kind of like talking about the weather. So I can 
tell you pretty well what uh, things may look like for the rest of the day today and tomorrow. I have a lot more trouble telling you about what things are going to look like next week. So um, sometimes the best thing to do is to give a range of days or weeks or months when we're talking about uh, prognosis, but people even appreciate that. And the other thing probably about that is that we tend to be overly optimistic uh, as a culture. And so uh, very often the um, conversation really needs to be, here's uh, my best estimate of uh, how long I think uh, your time may be, and we need to be ready in case it's not that long. Prognosis uh, can become very critical uh, in terms of helping people to make decisions about what to do now. So uh, once we have sort of established uh, the reality of the situation and talked a little bit about that prognosis, it's time to uh, set and confirm some goals. And again, this isn't necessarily the plan for, the, for care, um, but it's a plan to understand what's important for the patient. And so we re reflect back uh, on what has been heard, um, sort of come up with, again, that bird's eye view, that 20,000 foot view, um, sort of summary statement about things. Uh, well, grandma has had obviously a very, very big stroke here. We don't know what uh, amount of recovery she's going to experience. Uh, right now, she can't swallow. Uh, she's paralyzed on her left side. She can't really speak to us, but she might be sort of in there thinking about things. Uh, what has she said about how important it is for her to eat uh, and what that would mean in terms of our decision to put in a temporary feeding tube right now while we wait to uh, see if uh, she regains uh, any ability to communicate with us or any ability to swallow. And we may know that in three days. It's that kind of a conversation. And the answers to those kinds of questions are different. Uh, someone who has a profound uh, significance on eating and enjoying food may have told their family or put down in a living will uh, that they would never want to be uh, kept alive by artificial nutrition, not even for a day. And so that turns that conversation into a significantly different clinical picture uh, than simply assuming that we should put a feeding tube in a patient who has a stroke uh, because we don't know what three days from now is gonna look like. So to um, think about uh, the goals uh, and what's important to a person uh, and to uh, confirm that with all the family members, uh, obviously because not everybody may agree with what the patient herself said, uh, and to then consider um, yes or no on a time-limited trial of an intervention uh, is important. There's many other examples of the same uh, type of thing. We talk uh, all day about um, what it would mean to go or not go back into an intensive care situation. For We talk about um, whether even uh, coming back to the hospital are things that people um, want to do uh, if uh, they are uh, facing a situation where it's uh, obvious that things are gonna continue to deteriorate. Hearing what's important, uh, again, in terms of being at home uh, compared to being in a care center 
com uh, thinking about uh, those life goals that we discussed before uh, all have profound effect on uh, the choices that are going to be made for the future. So we think about the goals. And then what we want to do is present some care options. We kind of divide those into some uh, broad philosophical or conceptual frameworks. Often uh, with folks, uh, again, the default setting is that we are going to continue to do things to you to keep you alive longer uh, until somebody says that there are some boundaries. So uh, the, the assumption sometimes automatically out of the chute is that we are going to continue aggressive care with no limits on interventions um, and aiming at getting you the best that you can possibly be. Uh, and sometimes when we finish a family meeting, that is exactly what we end up with, uh, is that for right now, today, uh, we are going to continue to do everything we possibly can to keep you alive. Then sometimes in the middle of those conversations uh, start to come some ideas that maybe there are some things that really would be deal breakers. And so uh, obviously the uh, issue of resuscitation and life support would be kind of the first one of those uh, to be on the radar. In other words, if my heart stops and you try to revive me with CPR, or if I can't breathe and you need to put me on a ventilator to survive, whether that's short-term or long-term, what is the very likely outcome of that going to be on my quality of life? And so sometimes people will say, you know, I need you to do everything that you can aggressively to keep me alive, but there's one or two things that I don't want you to do. And so we start to talk about foregoing interventions. Uh, and then that can move upstream uh, in later conversations and sometimes become uh, part of developing a care plan and care options that maybe make things look a little bit differently. While we're doing that, especially in palliative care, we want to uh, constantly blend in the idea of symptom management. We're talking about the right way to take care of you. And while we're talking about these choices, we want to make sure that we're relieving your suffering as best as we can. So um, during the course of time, we will deal with pain, difficulty breathing, delirium, constipation, nausea and vomiting, uh, a host of other symptoms, anxiety and depression, things that cause people to suffer that need to be dealt with right in the middle of aggressive management uh, and no matter what else uh, is happening. And I've mentioned before the importance of team in having uh, a sort of a care plan. And this is a very flat uh, structure to a team. In other words, it's not a physician down. Uh, this is a level playing field with uh, psychosocial and spiritual uh, support and intervention. You step back away from that and again um, oftentimes what is really the most helpful is then to make a best recommendation for care based on what we understand, uh, the experience, and the results of the conversation that we've had today. I want to digress just a little bit into uh, some territory that uh, we uh, not infrequently find ourselves in. And that is 
uh, the patient or family uh, who digs their heels into the ground and says, we want everything done. And unfortunately, sometimes our reaction to that is um, to say, okay, then we'll do everything uh, humanly possible uh, to keep you alive. And that sometimes does a disservice to the patient and to their family and to the providers that uh, are consulting us because uh, everything is a huge word and everything can mean different things. What everything means to the patient or what everything uh, means to the provider, uh, it's important to explore that. And it may represent a variety of meanings and it may represent a variety of treatment philosophies. Usually, uh, in the face of progressively declining clinical performance and medical status, we want everything done is a cry for safety. Many times we understand that to do everything to keep a person alive would be essentially futile. Uh, not that every, every possible intervention is futile, but that to say as a blanket statement that we're going to do everything uh, would be medically inappropriate and not helpful uh, for the patient. So the root causes of we want everything done um, oftentimes uh, are a result of uh, information that's been gathered piecemeal uh, or is inaccurate. Um, nobody has simply sat down with the patient and family and helped them to understand the truth of what's happening. Or it may be out of a sense of guilt or fear or anger. Again, the family member who's been away for a long time or is estranged from the patient um, or is angry because of a perceived um, and maybe even a real uh, wrong that's been done to them. Uh, they may be dealing with some uh, loss of their own uh, and grieving that loss uh, and transferring uh, the tension of that loss into the current situation. They may not trust the medical system and there may be very good reasons for that. They may have a very dysfunctional family system uh, or again, there may be uh, cultural or spiritual issues uh, that are at play in uh, the defensive uh, request to do everything. So it's important to explore uh, those things as much as possible and again, uh, the team aspect of that exploration and the longitudinal aspect of uh, doing that over time can become very, very important. Um, you can't always just um, sit down and sort of figure all that stuff out in 20 minutes. There may be actually uh, similar difficulties in dealing with providers and especially in a complicated situation where there's multiple providers. Uh, there may be inadequate or inaccurate information that's tr being transmitted uh, from one doctor to another. Uh, doctors may themselves feel afraid uh, to sit down and have a conversation with a patient that says, hey, you know what, um, I'm getting to the end of the things that I can do for you to keep you alive longer, and we need to talk differently. Um, that may cause some tension with other providers as well, uh, because uh, one may feel that in their territory, they, they can do uh, definitely some things to keep that heart going. Um, and I don't really wanna talk about um, what uh, is happening with the lungs or the kidney or the liver, because um, I still have some stuff to do on the heart area. 
So that, that can cause some tension. Uh, <clears throat> and dealing with that uh, is, uh, again, sort of an art form. Uh, and then uh, that points to really the system. And so uh, what we find in American medicine is that we are dealing with a fragmented uh, system where nobody really is taking the lead in uh, helping patients to understand the truth of what is happening to them because it's easier to avoid it than it is to talk about it. In discussing uh, sort of the answer to we want everything done, our first goal is to build the team and to include the patient and their family in that team. What's key in that is to develop trust so that everyone understands that we are interested uh, in hearing the voice of the patient the loudest and in managing the situation in a way that uh, respects the dignity and the life of the person more than anything else. Most often that comes down to kind of a shared decision-making approach that uh, is uh, a consensus building uh, and uh, again, based one that's based on trust. To uh, look at that sort of another way, um, you know, sometimes it's important to just ask again an open-ended question, what does everything mean to you? Uh, and we can think about that in an affective, cognitive, spiritual, or uh, family-centric uh, sort of a way. Uh, so everything um, sometimes comes out of, uh, again, a sense of fear or abandonment that a patient has. You have to do everything uh, to keep me alive because I'm afraid of what that plan B would look like. Someone who has uh, chronic lung disease suddenly feels like they're suffocating. That is the thing uh, when uh, emphysema decompensates that drives people to the emergency room. And to go to the emergency room, the expectation is you're gonna make me better. Uh, and the truth is that we can't fix anything about your emphysema we can probably do some things to balance it and make it feel better. But what we don't do is to talk to you about um, what you're afraid of, which is what you, what you would do if you didn't come to the emergency room. Um, how, how could you take care of me um, well in that panicky moment, in that situation where I have to do something? Um, what is it that you're gonna do? So if you're not gonna talk to me about that, then I'm just gonna tell you, do everything. Sometimes do everything results from an incomplete understanding of the um, medical process or um, some need for reassurance in the uh, understanding of uh, my disease process. So uh, when someone with cancer uh, is contemplating going on a trial, what is it exactly that you're hoping for that uh, that trial is gonna do for me? Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes we don't do a very good job of communicating with people uh, when they're about to step over that threshold, um, why they're really doing that. It's not because we're hoping to cure your cancer. Um, it's because um, we're trying to test a new drug and see if it would um, produce an inch uh, of benefit. Sometimes, again, as we've spoken about, there's a spiritual uh, domain to the worldview of a patient or their family um, that says there is a sanctity uh, or a reverence of life uh, that really tells me that I have to do everything to make life go on. 
And rather than saying that that's not the right perspective to have, what we want to be able to do is to explore that to help uh, folks to understand uh, what the responsibility, um, the accountability, the stewardship principles um, are uh, that we have in medicine that um, fit into their perception of God's will or God's plan for them. And again, I would tend to rely heavily on my spiritual care colleagues uh, to uh, have that conversation. There may again be family issues or social issues uh, in the we want everything done sort of category. That there may be some significant implications if grandma dies about what's going to happen to cash flow. And sometimes that's above board and sometimes it's not so above board um, in dealing with financial issues. Uh, there may be significant conflicts and who is taking care of things. Um, and it's, try to, it's easier to try to maintain the status quo than it is to um, talk about doing something differently. So all of those are important uh, and valuable uh, ways of kind of exploring uh, when the pushback uh, in the conversation is that uh, we want everything done. Uh, when that happens, uh, it's sometimes uh, possible and good to propose a philosophy of treatment. And so you maintain kind of the uh, phraseology of everything. Uh, but if everything uh, really is not everything, uh, then you can talk about providing everything that provides relief of suffering, even if life is shorter. And then you can draw the picture of, of what that looks like, because it's quite possible that that's really what people mean when they say everything. Um, it means everything um, necessary for me to not suffer. Sometimes the philosophy is uh, that uh, I want you to do everything to prolong my life, um, but I don't want you to do things that increase my suffering. And now that you've talked to me, I understand that going on dialysis would increase my suffering. So let's talk about prolonging my life as much as you can um, up to that point. It may be that everything uh, is everything reasonable to prolong life, even if it does increase my suffering, because I have to do everything that I can uh, to survive until next month when that great great grandbaby comes. Um, and I'm willing to put up with the physical suffering or emotional uh, or spiritual suffering. Um, and that's, that's important to me. And then it's important for us to be able to respond to that. Uh, and then uh, sometimes everything means everything that could possibly prolong life, even if it does increase suffering. And that gets you back into that territory of there will be no boundaries and there will be no limitations on the things that you need to do to keep me alive. And to be honest, sometimes that's where we end up. And whether we think that that's a right or a wrong, we just have to be okay with that. Then what uh, we'll want to do is to reflect back a philosophy that seems to fit the best and uh, ask if that's the right philosophy. And so one of those uh, bullet points on the last slide that I articulated um, might be the way that I would that I would say that to a patient and ask if that's if that's correct if I heard them correctly and to recommend a plan of treatment that fits that philosophy and so again um, the immediate next steps might be something like okay well then we'll go ahead and put in that feeding tube uh, and we'll follow up in a few days I sort of in casual conversation will 
say to people that uh, we need to talk about some what ifs. So what if we put that feeding tube in and three days from now, she's not waking up? Um, what if um, you go home now uh, and you uh, have to come back in the hospital in two weeks instead of two months? And again, we try to do that in a non-judgmental way that simply illuminates um, the uh, understanding that we have of what is likely uh, to be facing us. It's still possible, even in a situation where a patient or their family says, we want everything done, um, to have a good conversation and to explore uh, further what everything means. Sometimes, um, again, the immediate sort of response that you get um, to suggesting uh, even the thought or the possibility of not uh, continuing aggressive life support interventions is a very emotive response. And sometimes people scream, sometimes people scream at me, sometimes people get up and walk out of the room and I let that happen uh, and they may or may not come back. Uh, but uh, understand that uh, emotional responses are part of a response and not an inappropriate part of a response to a very, very difficult situation. Uh, emotions are involuntary. They jump out um, before a rational thought does. And so sometimes what that emotion does um, is to allow some time for the rational and cognitive thought and idea to sort of catch up. So acknowledging the emotion, acknowledging the difficulty, acknowledging the hostility, um, depersonalizing that, make it not be about them or about you, but make it be about this bad thing. Um, that's happening is very much okay. And then given some time, um, maybe days, we can um, oftentimes move on to have a rational thought and a rational conversation, uh, replacing that emotional one. Moving away from that whole conundrum of we want everything done and back into our uh, conversation about uh, the uh, closure of the family meeting. Uh, we want to establish a plan. And again, a consensus sort of plan is really the best way to go. We want to mutually agree uh, on the steps necessary to achieve whatever those goals are that we've stated. I need to eat. I need to get home. I need to see my grandbaby, if that's at all possible. I want to see green leaves or green grass under my feet. Um, those are all things that I've heard in the last few weeks. Uh, need to consider um, the interventions that are imminently in front of a patient, uh, especially in light of whether it will help to meet those goals. So uh, if, again, we're talking about um, putting in a tube or having some kind of uh, procedure uh, that is uncomfortable or painful or may require um, anesthesia with a significant risk, how is that going to help me to accomplish uh, any of those goals that we've determined to be the most important ones? If uh, it's not going to help, then let's strongly consider and even recommend not doing those things. Um, and that sometimes for the physician provider is where the rubber meets the road because doctors don't like to not do things. That can sometimes spawn an, a new conversation or a new tension uh, in the whole big picture. But it's, the but it's the right conversation to have. 
As we reach the end of the family meeting, after everything that you've worked through, be as specific as possible about a follow-up plan. And so um, now that we've gotten done talking for an hour or an hour and a half today, I think we need to meet again the day after tomorrow because we're gonna have a sense then of how things are going. We're gonna maybe answer some questions from today. Uh, we're gonna have a better picture of things and I'll be able to talk with you a little bit more clearly about how, what things look like. So it's very important for us um, to follow up and it's not necessarily gonna be another um, fillet you open, knock down, drag out, make everybody um, you know, bear their soul and feel bad for an hour and a half. Uh, kind of conversation, but um, for the key people to be here for some specific questions that we asked today uh, to at least be uh, discussed and followed up on, uh, and maybe for the decisions that we make today uh, to kind of give uh, themselves time to, to make a declaration about how things are going to go uh, is important. And again, when we started out today, uh, sometimes uh, thinking about all of the stuff that needs to happen uh, in the family meeting, depending on the nuances and the, the family dynamics um, and, the, and, and the actual clinical scenario, uh, it's impossible to do uh, everything in one day. And so we need to um, chop it up and cut it up and say, okay, we're going to do this little bit of this today uh, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment and uh, we need to talk about this. Uh, in a couple more days. Even during the meeting, um, if I've started sort of with the idea uh, in my mind of what things are going to look like at the end uh, of that meeting, they may or may not. And if they don't, I have to be very ready to be flexible and to give a little bit uh, within the meeting itself and maybe even stop it early uh, and say that we're going to come back to some other things later. And I give homework a lot. And so sometimes that's even something where we can use humor and sort of laugh about it and tell an, an 85 year old when's the last time they got some homework. Uh, sometimes that, that, that gets a little giggle. So, um, but I'm very serious about it. And uh, again, you wanna be as specific and as simple as you possibly can. Get it down to kind of a yes or no, uh, if possible, but understand that behind that yes or no, there's a whole lot of meaning and a whole lot of technical things. We want to reach a conclusion. So we'll uh, tend to summarize those areas where we've agreed. Uh, we um, want to make sure that everybody understands that even though sometimes we can anticipate what we think may happen, uh, that it, it may not actually go that way. Uh, I've had people that, uh, for example, with um, Alzheimer's disease who are aspirating uh, and, and that combination, dementia and aspiration, is basically a deadly combination. Uh, we don't improve quality of life and we don't improve duration of life by putting feeding tubes in people who have dementia. Uh, what we really can conclusively say about that is that we increase their chances of being restrained so that they don't pull out their feeding tube. So in general, we wouldn't advise that someone who has dementia have a feeding tube placed because it doesn't work very well. But having said that, uh, I've had the opportunity to counsel families that uh, if we let grandpa eat, uh, he's very likely going to aspirate and uh, probably will get pneumonia and that may be the beginning of the end for him. Uh, if we manage his symptoms, uh, 
he, and uh, keep him comfortable, uh, he will probably die from pneumonia, and that might be pretty soon. And sometimes that doesn't happen. So um, what we want to do, um, anticipating that possibility, is to say that uh, things don't always go the way that we expect they're going to, positively or negatively. Uh, if things go uh, well um, against our expectations, everybody wins. And I tell people I love to be wrong. And so it's never about, again, doing something that is going to shorten time. It's about thinking of those choices and what they mean to the quality of life. It's always important to promise advocacy and to um, let people know that no matter what else, uh, we are there for them. And patients don't, and their families don't always feel that way. Sometimes in a, a scary, cold, uh, sterile, hostile appearing medical environment. From our perspective uh, on the palliative care team, we would wanna make sure that we document the meeting uh, in the record, uh, document the salient points of the conversation, uh, and to discuss and communicate the results of that conversation with other providers. And that's very, very important to identify all of the uh, stakeholders, again, from the provider side, uh, and to communicate, especially when some specific conclusions have been reached. So here's the summary. Uh, it's important in a family meeting to um, help to establish uh, the right big picture plan of how to take care of a patient, to establish that background information and think about uh, the uh, medical uh, information there as much as possible, to establish the setting, think about the space and the uh, body language and all of the things that go into that, uh, to make sure that we know uh, who should be there, uh, and to uh, introduce and to, uh, again, sort of set the uh, power gradient uh, in the room or to at least understand that, to do the medical review, uh, starting with the patient and their family, then reflecting uh, from the medical perspective to give time for questions and reactions and some conversation about that, but not to uh, get too far down too many rabbit trails. It's important to try to do some prognostication as much as we can and then to think about uh, the, the uh, perspective on setting and confirming those goals uh, that we've heard through the medical review, to present the care options, and then to establish a plan uh, going forward, and then to uh, make sure that we have a recommendation for follow-up and some conclusions uh, on the issue. I hope this has been helpful in working through um, what uh, I do every day uh, and is a very, very important part of uh, communication and palliative care. I'd like to uh, particularly thank uh, Dr. David Weissman, who's a colleague of mine uh, who has uh, been training doctors for a long time to uh, run family meetings, uh, and the Centers uh, to Advance Palliative Care, uh, Dr. Back, uh, who uh, provided some information on talking to patients and families who want everything. Thank you very much.